the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is The World We Made. everybody. This is Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by our good friend, Pastor Jacob Menzel, for part 10 of our 11-part series on fatherhood. And for these last couple episodes, what we realized is that a lot of fathers out there, a lot of dads have been listening, and some of you might be discouraged. Some of you might even feel hopeless as you look at the the Mount Everest before you of, of reclaiming your fatherhood, of applying some of these truths. And so what we want to do with these last couple episodes is offer some hope. Look at the ways that we're all coming at this from different places, right, Jake? Yeah, it, we recognize that a lot of dads listening to this show may have had very bad relationships with their dad, maybe listening to Pastor Tim and thinking to themselves, well, that's easy for you to say. And so what we wanted to do is take a step back and let Tim tell the story of his relationship with his dad and where and how he began piecing together his understanding of fatherhood, the difficulties that he went through to get to where he is today. Right. It was it was messy. Yeah. And it's messy for all of us in our own in our own ways. But We think that it'll be helpful and encouraging to you to hear what kind of dad Tim had and what kind of son he was Mm -hmm. when he got started. All right, so let's listen to that. I'm acutely sensitive to father hunger because father hunger defined my entire childhood through the time I left home. And it was for a variety of reasons. When I was a young child, my father was editor of a national magazine called His, H-I-S, and it required him to spend two weeks of every month out in Chicago when we lived in Philadelphia. He lived out there and put the magazine together every month. But he was also the director of the Eastern Region for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which published his. He was also publisher of InterVarsity Press. And as the director of the Eastern Region, he had to travel, and he spoke on campuses constantly. The only vacations, I shouldn't say the only, we did go to Cape May for, I think, about a week a year. But other than that, our vacations were always him speaking at Bear Trap Rampshire Cedar Campus. And of course, when he did that, he didn't have time for us because he was working with students. And so my childhood, I remember when my first brother died when I was three and a half or four, and he was four, four and a half. Danny, when he died of leukemia, I remember that it was my mother sort of retreated into grief. And it was my brother Joe, my oldest brother and my oldest sister Deborah, who really raised me. I can remember sitting on the toilet Sunday morning and having Debbie get me ready for church. I can remember that when my report card came, all the rest of our family's kids were straight A students. My brother was a National Merit Scholar, went to Swarthmore. They were all brilliant. And I wasn't stupid, but every report card had the same thing year after year, and it was, does not work up to potential. (laughs) And of course, that was the bad thing about me. And I remember I was never worried about my father or mother seeing that on my report card. I was worried about my oldest brother seeing it. And I asked my sister this past year when I had lunch with her one day up in Chicago, I asked her why that was, why I just re- re- just remember my brother. And, and she said, well, because daddy was always gone. So God provided for me. And my oldest brother was a godly man, a wonderful father to me. I, I, I mentioned in the book that I think part of the reason, I mean, you, you get the title of the book, Daddy Tried, because I write that daddy tried. Daddy tried with me. 
When my first brother that died died, I was I was absolutely I was I was attached to him like a Siamese twin. I remember playing in the living room, playing tense with over the seat back, over the back of the couch, and over straight back chairs, blankets, and we'd be under there playing. We we were inseparable. And then he died, and my father felt my pain. He, of course, felt the pain too, because everybody adored my older brother Danny. He took me out. You know, you can watch the video for the book on this that you guys did such a good job on. But he took me out to carve a boat. You know, he was going to be a good dad to me, and we were going to both deal with our grief, right? Actually, he was going to help me with my grief. Anyhow, he took me out. We sat down in the woods and began to carve this huge block of wood, you know, and he would buy these uh, battery-driven propellers for the backs of wooden boats. How we were ever going to get that massive hunk of wood down to a little boat that a propeller would drive was beyond me. But we went out, took our carving knives, and then the next day I had the most horrible, horrible case of poison ivy, and I'd had shorts on, and so it was all up high in my pants and it was because he sat me down on a log covered with poison ivy and that's where the book gets its title because i say i don't mind daddy tried and that's what he did he tried the sad thing is that having had that sort of catastrophic failure we never carved again we never did anything else with that boat and that's kind of the story of my life with my dad of I adored my father, loved him, was not bitter, was always vulnerable to my father, was always prepared to receive any bones that he would throw in my direction. Sometimes it wasn't bones at all. It was beautiful porterhouse steaks. I remember going, he'd take me to conferences. I remember sitting in conferences, listening to him speak. I love to listen to him speak. I love to be where my father was. I was my father's son. Then a second son died, and that did even more damage to my mother and father. And then a few years, then the fourth son died, me being the third. And he died at, at about two weeks of cystic fibrosis. Then another son was born, and that son had hemophilia. And my oldest brother had hemophilia. And then another son was born, and he had cystic fibrosis also. And by God's mercy, that son lived. It was nip and tuck for a long time. C. Everett Koop was our family doctor, and he did surgery on him and perfected a technique of operating on CF children that he used as a slide. It was called the Koop procedure, if I remember correctly, and he showed it around the country always. It was my brother Nathan, his body. And then my father left university, took a job out in Chicago, and he worked in Chicago. And he was building a house out there for us. We were back in Philadelphia. And then Thanksgiving came, and we didn't have any money. If you worked for university, you were, you were in the doghouse, poor. We lived in a duplex. My dad had to make hoagies every week for the people at our Christian school just so that we could get by as a family. In addition to being editor of his, in addition to being Eastern Regional Director, he had no pension when he left university. And so he took a job out in Chicago at David C. Cook Publishing. He didn't have the money to come home both Thanksgiving and Christmas, so he decided to come home Thanksgiving, and that then our family, after Christmas, would drive out and move into our new home. Well, then Christmas evening, he wasn't home. He was out in Chicago. My brother and sister went out sledding, and I asked if I could go, and my mother wouldn't let me go, and my brother fell off the sled that night. Dad flew out. He was in intensive care, and he died. So, so get this. Your oldest son has hemophilia. 
The second son dies. He, I had an older sister, Deborah, in between my oldest brother and my next oldest brother. The next son gets leukemia and dies a year later. The next son has CF and dies at two weeks. The next son has hemophilia and lives. The next son has cystic fibrosis and barely lives. The next thing that happens is that your oldest son dies. And you've just taken a new job and you're moving your family away from the only home they've really ever known, where they've helped start Delaware County Christian School with a couple other couples. And they've been sort of the foundational family for Blue Church where we went to church. Well, come on, any idiot knows what happened with my father and my mother. They began to fight. They didn't get along. They didn't have any friends because they'd, they'd had to get a job and move to the Midwest. We're out in the middle of the country, and my father all of a sudden realized that he was not being hired for a permanent job. He told me this. He realized that Lee Vance, the guy that ran the company, had hired him to solve some problems but was not expecting him to be a long-term employee. And then my father realized that the way that he could assure the future of his job was to go out and to tell people around the country that David C. Cook was becoming conservative biblically and that they could now depend on it. And so he took every speaking engagement he could get because it was his future work. And so now put yourself in my shoes. I'm now out in Illinois. I'm reaching adolescence and my dad is, is gone. He's not getting along well with my mother. And he's just sad. And my mother is, well, okay. My mother is angry. <laughs> He got sad and she got angry. And so you're asking me what my relationship was like with my father. Maybe people won't believe me, but I absolutely adored my father. I was not bitter, but I was not a good Christian young man. My brother Nathan was, David and I weren't. People thought David was, but people knew I wasn't. And it was painful. David and Nathan were six and seven years younger. And so they were still toddlers. I was in adolescence and my dad was gone. As I went through adolescence, I was not able to process all my questions and fears and anger and grief with really anybody. My mother did as well as she could, but my mother was a woman, and I needed a man. Now, in the book, I tell the story of the denouement, the end. And the end came one day when I was living at home and working a job, and my father on a Saturday morning, as I went upstairs to my bedroom, it's probably nine or 10 in the morning, he said to me, hey, Tim, I want to say something to you. So I turned around, went back downstairs, and he looked at me and he said, Tim, you're not living in a way that pleases God, and you must leave this home. No shouting. I didn't have a temper tantrum. I love my father. And I knew what my father was doing was right. Didn't argue with him. I was not destroying the home. I was not bringing girls to my bedroom. I had no alcohol and dope in the home, da 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 But I wasn't living to please God. And I have always said that that was the greatest act of love of my father, the greatest. Because think of all my father had on his conscience at that moment. He knew that he had not been there for me. He knew he didn't know how to raise me as an adolescent. He was always good with little children. He was never good with teenagers. Even when David and Nathan became teenagers, it still was not his forte. And he had faith, and he kicked me out of his home. And let me tell you something. That cost him more than maybe having stayed home for seven years would have cost him. Because he knew life was cheap to me. He knew I was taking risks. He knew I did do drugs outside of the home. If I, I hitchhiked around the country at that time, all over the country. And if I got in a car that had drugs, you know, and it was always dope or one-time opium, 
you know, I, I'd do whatever the people were doing. Dad knew that. Dad knew the, the kinds of things I was doing. And my father had faith to tell me that I had to choose between God and sin. Not between him and sin. He was just the, the, the bearer of the bad tidings that I had to leave his home. But it wasn't because of him or my mother or my brothers. It was because of God. If I wouldn't serve God, I was gone. And I know a lot of people listening to this will just want to argue and want to say that dad failed me at that point and how could he have lived with himself if I died out on the road somewhere? I'll tell you something. There used to be a famous author. Uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Yancey. Yul, Yul, Yul Fan, Fancy. What, what did you say? What, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil Yancey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, he's a wheat knight, right? We all know each other. All the publishers, all the writers, all the authors, everything. And a number of years ago, Phil Yancey contacted me and he said, my recent book just published, put grace back into amazing or put amazing back into grace or when grace is amazing or something like that. He said, I wanted to use a story about you. He said, I never checked it out to see if it was true. So when the book went to press, I wasn't able to include it. But I, but he said, I'd like to use this story. And I've never heard it f from you. And your father's, at that time, my dad had been probably dead 15 or 20 years. And so I want to put it to you straight. You know, I heard the story and he told this story and it was a tearjerk. It was maudlin that you were estranged from your parents. And then one night, your father came into your room at the house where you were renting and he leaned over your bed and he said, Tim, I love you. And that changed your life, and you came back to Jesus. And I remember feeling vomitous when I read that, because I felt that it was exactly the way an evangelical who believed only in cheap grace would understand the story of my relationship with my father. And so I wrote him back, and I said, Dear Mr. Yancey, no, that's not how it happened, and no, you may not use this story. And I never bothered telling him what the story was because I didn't think he'd get it. And people might think I'm being ungracious in saying that, but let's just say this is not the only time that I had something to do with Phil Yancey and Christian Publishing and Christianity Today and Harold Myra and all these names that mean nothing to people today. So what was wrong with Phil Yancey's story? Well, what was wrong with it was that it focused on the sentimental cheap cotton candy part of the story. Now, in fact, it wasn't cheap and it wasn't cotton candy. But listen, yeah, my dad did find my house and come into my bedroom in the middle of the night and tell me he loved me. That's true. And it is true that that is part of what God used to draw me back to himself. It didn't happen, though, for another year or two. But it didn't have the context that is necessary to understand it. What really happened was not that my father came and found me in the middle of the night. What really happened is that my father kicked me out of his house. And without him kicking me out of his house, him coming to my room and finding me in the middle of the night and telling me I, that he loved me would, would, wouldn't have been meaningless. But let me tell you, it was his suffering at my absence from his house that made that night so precious to me. So the real story is that my father was in anguish over me after he kicked me out of his house. Right afterwards, I decided to rent a place and I needed a down payment, a deposit of, I think, $350. And I asked dad if he'd loan it to me. And I didn't borrow money from my father. You know, you might think, oh yeah, you were probably. No, I had always had a job from junior high school. I worked for a couple of years cleaning the stalls in a boarding stable. I worked cleaning bathrooms at a motel one summer. I packed books at Tyndale House. 
I worked constantly and had money from the time I was in junior high school. I did not borrow money from people. I had money. But for some reason at that time, and I think it was probably because it was a shock to me and I had to immediately come up with a place to live. I needed a down payment. You know what my dad said? He said no. Why did he say no? Well, it wasn't because I had a habit of not repaying my debts. I never had debts. So why? My father was not going to help me. He wasn't going to let me live in his home. My father was going to give me no blessing, none, because I refused to honor his father. Okay? That's, it's that simple. And so I went off and I found a bunch of, uh, it's kind of cheap to say hippies, but that's what we all were. You know, a bunch of artsy-fartsy, soul-patch, hipster, decadent, Woodstock wannabe photographers, painters. And we rented a house. That house is now a tavern on the edge of Wheaton, halfway between Wheaton College and Christianity today. <laughs> and we filled that house up with every weirdo, couples that weren't living, that were living together and weren't married, people that worked at Tyndale House, people that worked who knows where. And my father is abstemious. My father is Steve Martin in planes, trains, and automobiles, seated next to John Candy on the airplane. That's my father, okay? And in the middle of the night, my father got a call. He thinks it's from a man in our church that didn't like him. I think he's probably right. And that man said that he had been out in a jail ministry and that he had seen me in jail and that I had been arrested for drugs. And he wanted my father to know. And I suspect that he probably called my dad very, very late. It must have been very late. And so my father, and I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I can't give you all the details except to say that for some reason, this man did not identify the jail or something, or he identified the jail and my father called that jail and I wasn't there. And so my father went into a frantic mode of trying to find this son that he loved who was in jail for drugs. And he called and he called and he called and he could not find me anywhere in the suburbs of Chicago. And he was desperate and he was desperate because he had already lost his oldest son. And finally, he could not find me anywhere. And so he got in his car and he drove 11 miles into Wheaton because we lived out in the middle of the country. And he'd never been at my house, but he knew which house it was. He came in that house. Well, that would have been so difficult for my father because he would have been so fearful about what he'd find in that house. It would confirm every fear about his son and the people his son hung with. I was in the front upstairs bedroom. And so, you know, my father had to go to bedroom after bedroom after bedroom and open the doors up to find his son, right? And I don't know if he woke the people up or not, but the indignity of my father having to open doors on a couple that are living together, in bed together, and not married, everything that that entailed. And finally, I'm in bed. I'm asleep, fast asleep. I hadn't been arrested for drugs. I didn't have any drugs in my room, da-da-da-da. Sure, other people in the house did. All of a sudden, I, I, I find myself shaking, being shaken awake. And I come to, and there's my daddy, daddy, next to me at bed. And he's frantic. He says, Tim, are you all right? Are you all right? I open my eyes. I say, yeah, I'm all right. You're all right. Yeah, I'm all right. Are you all right? Yes, I'm all right, dad. And then he looks at me and he says, Tim, I love you. I say, I love you too, dad. And then he looks at me again and he walks out of the room. Probably lasted no longer than 30 seconds. And Phil Yancey wanted to put that in a book. 
He wanted to take out the fact that my father had kicked me out of the home and not given me a security deposit. He wanted to remove from the book the fact that some, probably some nasty gossip man in our church, a Pharisee of Pharisees, had called Dad up in the middle of the night lying about me. And, and Dad and I both believed that he actually did it intentionally. It's inconceivable to me that a man could do that, but that's actually what I think. My dad was not approved of by all of the, the clean people of that church. They never liked my dad because my dad had all kinds of different people living in our home with us, single women. My dad had written the gospel blimp, lampooning evangelical evangelism. There were people who were malicious to my father. Our church wouldn't let him join the church because he wouldn't sign the pledge saying he wouldn't smoke, drink, or go to movies. We didn't have a television, and he didn't smoke, and we never had alcohol in the home, but he thought it was unbiblical. And so now you can understand why there would be someone who would be malicious towards my father and crowing over his son and shoving his nose in, in, in the degradation of Timothy. Bill Yancey wouldn't have written about that. So no, Phil, you don't know the story, and you may not use it. Because that story is so precious to me, and I won't have it cheapened. My father's greatest love was not when he got out of bed and came in and found me in that room. My father's greatest love was when he kicked me out of the home and he wouldn't give me the security deposit. And the only way that night of him loving me in that room makes sense is because of him kicking me out of his home. And so you ask me what my relationship was like with my father, and now you know. Unbelievably tender and loving and firm. Oh, I could just tell story after story after story after story about my relationship with my father. But I think I'll end with two short ones. So to my father's unending surprise, I actually went back to college. I actually took Greek, and I think the second semester I got a B+. Plus. And so this son, who had never gotten good grades, who graduated in the bottom half of his graduating class at Elgin High School, for heaven's sakes, I didn't even have a C average. My SATs were great. <laughs> Went to UW-Madison, got good grades, got married, had children, and then he was really shocked because I went to seminary. He couldn't believe it. And then he was totally shocked when he got to be on the ordination council up in Partyville, where I was ordained at First Pres. Then he was completely and utterly shocked when they came up to visit us and he walked into my office and here was a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor, in his office, behind his desk with all the, all the bookshelves all around him filled with his son's books that he had bought almost all at used bookstores because I had a habit of always going to every used bookstore I could find, so I have a wonderful library. And I will never forget that day that he came up to visit. And he walked into my office and stood in the doorway, and he had the biggest grin on his face you can imagine. And you knew that my father was eye-poppingly gobsmacked about his son Timothy being a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> now, one last quick story. At our 10th anniversary, Dad offered with Mud, my mother, to come up and preach for us and take care of the kids while we went away. And he gave us a couple nights at the Marriott on North Michigan Avenue, uh, the magnificent mile in Chicago. So he came up, and before we left to go down and celebrate our anniversary, I went into the podium because he was preaching. It was, like, it was like a trifecta, you know? He would come up and take care of our kids. He'd bring my mother, and he'd preach for me. By then, Post-it notes, 3M had come out with these little yellow Post-it notes. I took a Post-it note, and I put it where he would see it when he got up to preach. I wrote on it, I love you, Dad. 
And so that's my dad. That's my relationship with my dad. Unbelievably tender, many hardships, many more hardships for my father than I have ever had. I think my father did a stupendous job of being a father. I would never trade him. <laughs> so anyhow, I hope that that gives you a picture of my relationship with my dad. <laughs> Made was produced by Nathan Alberson and an executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. For more great content, go to warhornmedia.com or check us out on social media as at warhornmedia. We'll be back next week to sum things up and offer some hope for the confused, for the scared, for the dads, basically for you. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed today's program, be sure to go to patreon.com forward slash out of our minds where you can sign up to support out of our minds in this very podcast. Go give a dollar, four dollars, ten dollars a month. We'd really appreciate your help and support, especially if you'd like to see season three come into existence. So go patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcast, Sound of Sanity, where Nathan and I tackle hot topics, issues in our culture that are making us feel insane. We engage in pop culture, culture, family, sex, sexuality. And so please check that out. Again, that's Sound of Sanity available at warhornmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts.